0: I want you to turn to John chapter 8. We are in a moment going to do work there. But before that, I just want to, I want to make a comment and I want you to respond. You'll need no time for contemplation. It's sort of just a reaction. But i want to make a comment and if you agree with this comment, then just kind of nod your head or show me that you're with me. Show me that you agree some way uh, non-verbally. I have a friend, a lot of times when I'll say something that he agrees with, he'll, he'll go. He doesn't talk a lot like me. He uses a lot of gestures, but he's like. I hear you, I hear you. But uh, here's my comment for you to react to, if you agree. But we're living in very interesting times. Yes. <laughs> I said non-verbally, that's Lauren, always verbal. I'm calling you out. Very interesting times, a, a couple of weeks ago, CNN reporter Polo Sandoval was in Fondren. He was at Fondren's first Thursday. I might've given him a ride on a golf cart with my bright green shirt when I was helping Cheney out. But he was here to talk about a house bill. This past week, our governor signed a bill and maybe you saw the photo, there was a gun on the Bible. And some of you are like, yeah, man, put a gun on a Bible, that's what I'm talking about. And others of you are like, I I gotta get out of here, man. There's a gun on a Bible. I don't know, man, it's freaking me, right? But let's agree. Let's agree that it's just very interesting times In which we live, why would a CNN reporter be here? He wanted to find out what was happening in Jackson, Mississippi. Where is he going to come? He's going to come to Fondren for at least part of that time and ask us what we think about what's going on. Very interesting times in which we live. And I want to say it's a very interesting time for us to look at a very pertinent passage, very relevant to us. Astounds me at times to think that the stuff that we're going through, that we can look and talk and argue, and read and discuss and dissect things, post things, respond, like to post. And then we can look way back to a story from so long ago and it speaks right to us. A lot of times pastors, you know, on Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday morning, like, be at church the morning, it's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be incredible, awesome, and amazing. Have you noticed it always is incredible, awesome, and amazing? I don't know if today is going to be amazing or not. I really don't. But I know we're going to read the word. I know what we're looking at. We need to hear. And I want to say to you, if you're a leader here, an elder, deacon, small group leader, you're on staff, at times it could be easier for you to zone out or maybe think it's for the people around you. But I think it's for you today. If you're a crusty church person, Maybe your heart has been angered at the world in which we live or you're not sure how to respond to the issues of the day. I think this passage is for you. It's for us. John chapter eight, very famous story, but I wanted to get past your defenses today, your defenses of familiarity. John chapter eight, would you turn there if you haven't already? We're gonna put the passage up. John chapter eight, verses one through 11. I'm gonna read from the text. The woman caught in adultery. Circle that word, caught. That's a scary word, isn't it? Who wants to be caught? One friend of mine who's really good at parenting, he speaks at Family Life conferences. he says, parents, why don't you catch your kids doing something right? The word caught so often is negative. It sure is in this story. Y'all ready? John 8. They went, I'm in verse 1. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught, there's the word, in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but then... I'm sorry, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Here's our question because we're in a series called The Questions Jesus Asked. Here it is. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. You heard the story. You know the story. In fact, I I'm, I'm almost, almost want to ask you if there's anyone in the room that hadn't heard that phrase, let him who is without sin cast the stone. Pro- probably not. In this story, the relig- let's, just, let's cut to the chase, call them what they are, the religious police bring this woman into the temple center court. They parade her before these judgmental men. Notice she's caught in an act of adultery. Anybody thought about this ever? She's caught. They bring her. What about him? I want some of you to know how far Jesus advances society. I don't think we appreciate that enough. I'm telling you, Jesus advances society. I've been in in debates on academic settings on college campuses talking about that very thing but the woman is brought before these religious police and they had a twofold motive they were seeking to shame her and they were trying to trap him that la- the first motive we see so clearly we talk about we think it's the major point of the story problematic for sure relevant for sure stuff to talk about for sure something to learn from no doubt but consider the, the larger point of this narrative that they were trying to trap Jesus. And I don't know what it is. It happened a couple of times as I prepared this sermon. It happened just now. I, I, I consider our Savior, and he bends down and he writes on the ground, and that just gets to me. In an age, and it happened as much then as now, they just didn't have social media, but leadership was rising to power. And Jesus Bends down, stoops down, some English renderings have it for us. He writes on the ground. Now, church, in this series, Questions of Jesus, I have a question for you. What did Jesus write on the ground? Well, we don't know, do we? If you if you study it, and a couple of you've texted me this week, hey Robert, what's the question? So you can read ahead. You make me nervous because you've studied before before the sermon, so I got to bring my A-game. But if, if you've read ahead and you, you know the question because you asked the pastor, maybe you studied the passage and maybe you studied some men and women who are good Bible scholars, maybe you've entered into their sanctified imagination, I'm gonna give you mine today. What did Jesus write on the ground? The story, follow me, okay? The story, as you know, is John 8. And before John chapter 8, there's John chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, we learn of something called the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Hebrew calendar, there were seven major festivals. There were, and these these festivals were spring festivals and fall festivals that that centered around the agricultural calendar. The spring feast, um, those included some things like the Passover, um, the feast of, of, uh, of Pentecost later, uh, those those were feasts that were celebrated, of course, in the springtime uh, when it was warm and festive and all. They're the fall feast, and these feasts are the feast of the trumpets. By the way, you can look at Leviticus 23 later for a very concise overview of these. But there's the feast of trumpets, the the fall festival. They're the feast of trumpets, the feast of atonement, and the feast of tabernacles. And it was the last feast of the year, this fall feast. It was the feast before winter. And this, uh, this gave people an opportunity. Thousands of pilgrims journeyed to Jerusalem. And this was an eight-day festival. It included singing, some dancing, probably some guys with beards. It included sacrifices, special rituals, and prayers. Prayers, what? Prayers that God would bring Winter rain, so they would have spring food. They were looking forward. They were hoping for a harvest. The religious leaders for eight days would talk about water. We got us some water this week, didn't we? We got us some water in our garage. Drew and Allie Mellon, sorry. You guys got a lot of water. Can we still help y'all? Are y'all good? Just new house? Our church's gonna buy them a new house. Allie's so happy. God, is, God does great things at Fonderwood, doesn't he? We've had, we got some water this week, didn't we? Last week, Daniel Wagner was up here preaching. How good did he do, huh? Don't, no, don't clap. He'll, it'll go to his head. But Daniel was up here preaching, and I didn't even notice it. I'm on the front row and didn't notice it, but he coughed a little bit, got choked up, and somebody brought him some water. You remember that? Were you here? And who is that dude? Is he here today? Right here. There he is. Thank you, sir. And Daniel appreciated him. Daniel thanked him. And notice that none of us brought Daniel water, Right? Just one, a room full of hundreds of people, only one brought him water. We need water, don't we? Water is vital. It's an essential element. For eight days, the Feast of Tabernacles, the religious leaders would teach. Thousands of pilgrims came to the hillside of Jerusalem. The religious leaders would teach about water. Water is rain. Water and thirst. Thirst as a metaphor for spiritual longing. And all the eight, those days led up to that one day, that final day, when the high priest would take a pitcher of water and a pitcher of wine and pour it on the altar and the people would chant, Hosanna, Hosanna. Do you know what that means? Anybody know what the word Hosanna means? Save us, God. Save us from what? Bring winter rain so we will, we will be saved from, from drought and from famine. Later, the word Hosanna would have political connotations as in save us, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us from the Romans who've invaded our land, the political oppressors. God, save us. The wine, the water, the people crying out, led by the religious people and their teachings about water, the high priest leading the way. God, give us, give us rain. Give us what we need. They had a great hope that their God would provide. And in this festival, John 7, we read from John 8, but you'll look back at John 7, you'll do it later. But in John chapter 7, Jesus, it says, he stood up on the great day, the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he said with a loud voice, why did he speak with a loud voice? We got some teachers in the room. He used his outside voice. Why did Jesus use his outside voice? Because it was a loud festival. There was singing and dancing, as we said. There was special rituals and sacrifices and prayers that God would save them, chanting of Hosanna. He had to speak loud to be heard. And Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, and he knew everybody was and everybody is, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. He knew that he was the fount. He knew he was the source. He knew he was the answer for people's deep spiritual longings. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Those people, their religious leaders and their high priest, taught about water over and over again. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah, look at this passage in Jeremiah 17, 13. Remember I said they were trying to trap him? They doubted. They didn't believe. They were religious, but they didn't believe him. Jeremiah 17, 13, the passage that they would be well acquainted with. I believe that Jesus is hearkening back to, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Keep that up for a second. I believe Jesus wrote their names. They knew the law. They knew the story. They knew about Leviticus 23 and the seven festivals and the spring festival and the fall festival. They knew They knew the law that pointed to the prophet, but they didn't believe. And not only were they seeking to shame this woman, they were seeking to trap Jesus. And I believe Jesus wrote their names in the sand. There are six words that I want you to go with today from this story. The first are these three, neither do I. Neither do I what? Neither do I condemn you. Good for Ty Garvey and Josh Bisher. They must have known a little bit of where I was going today. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore no more condemnation for those of you, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus in John three 17, I've come into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. There's therefore no more condemnation. Why did Jesus say, does no one condemn you? He asked the question and made the declaration, neither do I. Because people have a tendency to condemn other people. Nobody needs to write that down, right? I think we got that. This is pastor calling attention to the obvious. But people have a tendency to condemn other people. So if you're a people, raise your hand. People have a tendency to condemn other people. So as we consider the question of Jesus this morning, I want to ask you a question. Why do churches produce so many stone throwers? I was involved once in a church a long time ago. Their theology was good. Their doctrine was sound. Their facilities were beautiful. Their programs were polished, but it was a cold place. It was lifeless. They didn't have room for laughter, little capacity for for joy. Remember what we talked about weeks and weeks ago, Nehemiah 8, 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. There was none of that there. Somebody's kids would run wild, people would pick up a stone. A marriage wasn't working, pick up a stone. Worship leader sang the wrong song, another stone. Worship leader sang the right song at the wrong volume, more stones. People would get out of hand. People would have problems across the line, would violate the code. Word would spread, tongues would wag, eyebrows would raise, elbows would nudge. Why does the church produce so many stone throwers? People are hurting. We need to get this one right. Jesus says, remember these three, neither do I. For a moment then, let's talk about sin. Because you got it. Got some sinners in the room? You better raise your hand on this one seriously. Like everybody, everybody raise your hand. It could cost you. Dallas Willard wrote a great book called Divine Conspiracy. It rocked my world, especially chapter three. I would say it changed my life. He talks about a couple of categories of sin that I think is so insightful. You see it in the Gospels. He talked about uh, sins of the flesh. And sins of the flesh involve your appetite. Sins of the flesh are the juicy flesh. Sins of the flesh are the ones that really make us wag our tongues. Sins of the flesh include lust and gluttony and greed and drunkenness our appetites. There are also sins of the spirit. Dallas Willard says sins of the spirit don't involve biology as much as they involve our soul. And these sins include a superior attitude, bitter resentment, highfalutin judgmentalism, and pride that blocks the way. There are a number of stories I've learned in my own studies that Jesus, he tells. He tells these stories that include a triad. And the triad is this. Sinners of the flesh. Sinners of the spirit. And Jesus. I'll name four. We don't have a lot of time. I can give you four. There are more. But in Luke chapter 7, there's the story of the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. And there's the Pharisees around him. There's Jesus. In Luke chapter 18, there's the Pharisee and the tax collector go into the temple and pray to Jesus in Luke chapter 15 there's the prodigal son who goes away and waste it all in riotous rebellious living and there's the older brother oh yeah and of course Jesus and here in John chapter 8 I've given you I'm giving you four in John chapter 8 you see the woman caught in adultery the religious leaders and oh yeah Jesus and in all these stories that involve the triad of characters. It's the sinners of the flesh that realize they're in deep weeds. They've got a big problem and they see Jesus as someone that they can come to. And eventually, finally, at the end of themselves, they run to him. The sinners of the spirit are blinded by their pride. There's a yawn of familiarity about their religious life. And these people, I think most most damaging is the following. These people actually think, they won't articulate it, but they actually think that they can love God while they despise other people. Mm -mm. The sins of the flesh are the ones that make us do this. Jesus says, neither, neither do I condemn you. Who was drawn to Jesus? Lepers, crooked people, drunks. I'm going to say "At church ready, the sexually promiscuous. Who opposed Jesus? Church folk, religious people. Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, Levites, teachers of the law. And in this triad of stories, there's this beautiful message that writer Philip Yancey reminded me of so long ago in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He said that the audience at the time thought there were two categories of people in the world. The righteous and the sinners. The righteous, the men. The sinners, that woman. That woman. That woman caught. But Jesus shows us there are two categories of people but he changes the scorecard. And he says the categories aren't the sinners and the righteous. The categories are the sinners who admit and the sinners who deny. Backing up to this Feast of Tabernacles. This was, let me be clear, this was religious camping. Remember I told you about the high priest and the water and the wine? And they were camping and singing and celebrating. Can't you see how it'd be really easy for two people to end up in the wrong tent, regretting the decision that they made? And the religious people bring out this woman who ended up in the wrong tent, probably regretting the decision she made, probably trying to satisfy a thirst in very wrong ways, like we all do in our own way. And I believe that Jesus wrote the names down, not of the center of the flesh, but the sinners of the spirit. Neither do I. Jesus also says here, three other words I want to give you, sin no more. This is really important. It's really important because Jesus tells us how to relate to our world. This is where it gets a little thorny. You could call it complicated. That's not the word I would choose, but I would just choose the word messy. And some of you hate this because you just want really clear lines. And you know who wanted really clear lines? The Pharisees. Just make it easy to lay out the external so that there's no doubt. And we can make it really easy. And Jesus, the one who said, neither do I, neither do I what, neither do I condemn you. He said, sin no more. The same grace that looks into your past and says, you are forgiven, it is wiped clean. The wrong that you have done, there's a clean slate. That same grace is the grace that says, walk with freedom into your future. Sin no more. Solomon live life. Sin greatly. Wealth, possessions, education, accumulated along the way some hardened one wisdom in writing to his son in proverbs he says hey son there is a way that seems right to a man but the end is death now we do this sometimes but i want you to repeat that after me because it's really important i'm going to say there is a way and i want you to say there is a way that seems right that seems right to a man but the end is death We'll, we'll play with this okay there is a way That seems right, right. but the end is death. death. There is a way. way. That seems right, right. but the end is death. death. How many times do we do that? Three. There is a way. way. That seems right, right. right. but the end is death. death. (coughs) Three times in the book of Proverbs. You'll find that passage. It, it seems right. It sounds good. It makes sense. But it leads to sorrow, to misery, to despair. Oh, but it see, Oh, it seems this way. It seems so good. But it leads to another way. And you didn't think it was going to lead that way. When Jesus tells us to engage with the world, to engage with one another, let's don't subtract things. Let's don't over-read into John chapter 8. Let's don't get too excited about one side of this. Jesus says that we're to warn people. We're to ask people, challenge them lovingly to turn away from sin. We're to be a prophetic, prophetic voice. We're to speak truth to power. We're to be salt and light. We're to teach people to command all that Jesus said that we should obey. That's what we need to do. And there's a place for that. Life needs warning labels. Manufacturers of consumer products make warning labels, don't they? To stay away from lawsuits, probably to keep people safe, but largely to stay away from lawsuits, right? This coffee is hot. This, This is true. This silly putty should not be used in your ears, right? There's a lot of warning labels, but you and I. We need the warning labels. Because Jesus loves you so much. He says to you, sin no more. Because he knows that you're thirsty. And he knows that too often we're looking for what will satisfy. Going back to Jeremiah, a different passage, in broken cisterns. It's it's a source that won't satisfy us. Sin no more. Choose a different path. There is a way. It seems right to a man, but the end is death. Did you see the news this week of the tiger in West Palm Beach, Florida that mauled and killed his trainer? Tragic. I I dug a little further. Do you know that wild exotic animals that are held in captivity live three to five years shorter than they would if they're in the wild so when you take an exotic beast like this tiger this 12 year old male and you hold them in captivity be careful but this story probably unfolds like some of you would think that the relationship between this trainer and the tiger was so sweet they grew to love each other the 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 woman acted like a tiger and the tiger acted like a person and they loved on each other. There was affection. There was kissing and and holding. They were close. They thought they knew each other. It seemed so right, but it led to death. A couple of weeks ago, one of our members invited me to come do a prayer at a dream event at Old Capitol Inn. That's all I was to do was get up early, too early, and put on something nice and tuck in my shirt and and show up and offer a prayer and to be honest jenny i didn't really know where i was or what event i was attending so i was reading the literature and talking to the people at my table trying to get informed so i could pray a good prayer right if you're gonna, if all you're gonna do is pray you want to pray a good prayer of course we don't pray a good prayer to be heard by people we pray to god right so maybe that all that's kind of that got washed out but anyway. So I learned that this dream group is about keeping people off drugs. It's loving people, particularly young people, and said, hey, stay away from this. It's sort of the loving warning labels to life to people uh, that could go down this path. And I was at the table with the keynote speaker. There are a few ladies across the table. We exchanged pleasantries, but it was me and this guy. His name is Kenny Sills. He's the founder and producer of A&E's hit TV show, Intervention. It's fascinating, lives in Palm Springs. Uh, my mother-in-law lives in Palm Springs. We had, we had several things to talk about. So I prayed the prayer and he spoke. My prayer was about three minutes, his speech was about 35. Have you seen A&E's intervention? Powerful, gut-wrenching. The premise of the show, it reflects his story. He was just at the White House a week before talking to the president and a bunch of leaders to enact change in America. The idea there is when you see someone that you love sliding, you have to be willing to harm them in order to help them. And thus, an intervention. You think those interventions are easy? You think those people don't want to write the letters and don't want to confront their family members and don't want to get in their face? You think they're not worried about the explosion that could come after that, the the backfiring, their intended effect is this, but it could result in this. It could drive them further away. And I talked to this man. I heard his own story. He said, when I was four years old, I was made fun of. I would make myself vomit sometimes in front of my mother so that I wouldn't have to go to school and be picked on by these boys. When I was 13 years old, I picked up drink for the first time. And I drank a beer at 13 years old. And he said the first thing I noticed is it took away my anxiety. And for years, there were no real consequences. That's a deadly combination. Small substance takes away anxiety. No apparent consequence. He partied in New York, and LA and beyond, and one thing led to another. A lot of times drugs are gateways, and man, it opened up to a lot more. And by 26 was his time to hit rock bottom, and he's speaking and producing and talking today to say, man, I'm I'm in recovery, and I want to help other people. In Proverbs it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The psalmist said, when a righteous man strikes me, that is kindness. When that righteous man rebukes me, it it is as oil anointing my head. Oscar Wilde said, a friend, a good friend will stab you in the front. We've talked before, there's a difference between a scalpel and a dagger. One brings healing, one is used for killing. The same Jesus that says, neither do I condemn you said, go and sin no more. And there's a warning label there that sin will take you on a path that you do not want to go. And for us, we need to learn to speak to each other. So we can't take a story about not judging people and act like that we are to never make judgments. Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together says that very thing. There's a vast difference between being judgmental and making judgments. And I look back at my learning. And I kind of, y'all don't do this to me one day. But I kind of get mad at the church that I grew up in. Because it it, I didn't learn this. But you know, as believers of Jesus, as followers of Christ, we're not called ever to judge the world. We're not called ever to judge the world. In fact, James, the half-brother Jesus says, there's only one lawgiver and one judge. It's not you. It's not you. It's not you. It's not me. But we are called as believers in the body of Christ to help each other. Because according to Hebrews 2, we drift away. According to Revelation 2, we lose our first love. According to Galatians chapter 6, we can fall into sin. And there's there's a right way to make judgment, to come around someone, to talk about the warning labels in life. Now, we do it gently. We do it, the Bible says, with reverence and fear. We do it being very mindful, very careful of our own waywardness. And hopefully if we're doing it in love, we can share as a part of our own story of the same Jesus who says, he doesn't condemn us, but we are to go and to sin no more. Last night there were a couple of weddings. I presided over one and peeked at the wedding reception of the other. Laura was here to help lead the wedding that was here at Fondren Church right here. I presided over one at the South. And then I came to meet this couple Stuck my head in over at Duling Hall where they were having the reception. One couple, they left in a brand new, shiny Mercedes SL-something convertible. And the other couple jumped into an old, tattered, old Ford pickup truck. Now let me ask you, which couple is going to be happier? A couple of the Mercedes. Don't be stupid. We look, we look for stuff. We look for things to satisfy our thirst and to make us happy. And Jesus follows the religious leaders. Remember what he says? I quoted off in Matthew chapter five. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, they talked about water. Jesus talked about water, but it sort of ended there because he was saying, hey, it's not coming to you. It is here. And religious people, I know your name. I'm riding you in the sand because you've turned away from me. You're blind to me. Jesus, I I loosely quoted it, but here it is, John chapter 7 before John 8. On the last day and the greatest day of the festival, that's the... Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, a scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. He's saying that let's get away from these religious externals and let's talk about the core of our being. The Sea of Galilee is Israel's largest fresh lake. The Sea of Galilee flows into the G- River Jordan. The River Jordan flows into the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is dead. It's the lowest it's the lowest body of water below sea it's so far below sea level. And you know no one can drown in the Dead Sea. Number one because they won't let you swim in it. Number two because it's so salty every, everything floats. Can't swim. Can't drown in the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea gives no life. The Dead Sea is dead because it doesn't flow outward. So what if? What if Jesus changed our hearts? You know he's changing mine? Ask her. We are ruthlessly committed to letting Jesus work in our hearts, falling all the time, but confessing and repenting. This week, some sarcastic words of mine hurt a good friend of mine. Can you imagine that? And you know what he did? He called me out. Good for him. Because I need that. And the very next day, I told him, I'm sorry. Thank you. I want the Spirit who dwells in me to flow love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. I want that to flow out of my life. And I'm not always going to have the right words to say, and oftentimes I'm going to make big messes. But Jesus desires to work in me. And to flow out of me. And for me to engage in a world, to engage with my brothers and sisters in Christ, many of you. And to say, neither do I. One pastor, I quoted from him this past summer when we did a a sermon on a very controversial subject. But he says that the order of John 8 and the woman at the well is acceptance first. And then cleaning up life. Not the other way around. And some of you honestly have a brother or sister who's fallen and you're doing this. Maybe they're in your own family and you're doing this because you're waiting for the cleanup. And what you need is to accept them. That comes first. Neither do I. You gonna remember that? Sin no more. You gonna remember that? Let's pray.